I'm your host, Rena Friedman-Watts, and this is the Better Call Daddy Show. Hey, this is Big Daddy, Wayne Friedman. That's my grandpa. Grandpa, you ready for more daddy drama? My dad is my number one hero and number one fan. And I'm a pretty cool dude. All right, season four, baby, here we go. More stories you're not going to believe. And maybe you will after you listen. Five stars. Five and a half stars, two thumbs up. You are a pretty cool dude. Love you, mommy. Don't stand on the table and damn the public. You'll get some words of wisdom to live by. Here we go again. Better call daddy. You know what your problem is? You like me. Yeah, I do. Each week, I interview a guest, share the stories with my dad, and then he weighs in at the end of every episode with his wisdom and wit. Thanks, Grandpa. Everyone from influential players to inspirational fathers, and of course, controversial people. Grandpa, my mom is calling. Creating that legacy one call at a time. And welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show. Stay tuned. Where's the music? Better call daddy cause he knows your best. Better call daddy cause he's bringing the test. He sees possibilities. Possibilities. Better call daddy, he'll be by your side. Better call daddy, you're the apple of his eye. He sees My dad says that you have to feel good in order to be creative and be willing to give back. Today's guest, Ann Kofsky, was giving back and teaching to my sister Jessica's class in Israel. She's an award-winning author and illustrator of more than 40 children's books. Anne, welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show. I wanted to let the audience know like how we met is so amazing because you cool. were talking about art to my sister's class, Jessica. She was yes. teaching out of a bomb shelter in Israel. Wow. I see. I didn't even know that it was in a bomb shelter because I was on Zoom. I was Zooming into your sister's class in Israel. So she was in a bomb shelter. She looked like she was in her house. I saw plants. She told me she was teaching out of a bomb shelter for three weeks. And I think that it's amazing that you enjoy talking to students about art and what you do. Oh, yeah. It's the best thing because I'm an author and an illustrator and I make books. And the thing about being your art is supposed to like if you're a concert pianist or something and you play the piano, you do it in front of your audience and you get the reaction instantaneously. And so then, you know, oh, this is working or like a comedian would be an even better example, right? You tell a joke, you lay laugh, they don't laugh, whatever. And then you get to have that reaction and that feedback. But when you write and when you illustrate, there's like this two year disconnect <laughs> between when you create the work to when somebody enjoys the work. And then you don't even normally in the normal course of events, you really wouldn't even be part of that experience unless they're like fan girling on you or something and like, you know, send you a note saying, I loved your book, which is pretty rare. Does happen. Does happen, but pretty rare. <laughs> and so when I go into schools, Zoom or otherwise, I get to have that audience reaction like, this is my book. I made it. What you think? And it's really, as an artist, very, very rewarding. It's like, it's a two-year delay, but it's me, you know, using my work and having people respond to it, which is great. That's fantastic. Yeah. I would love to know a little bit more about your creative process because you are an illustrator, an editor, an um, a storyteller. You're so many things. Shopping too, you know, I'm up with everything. <laughs> yeah. How do how does one part of it. feed into the other? Talk a little bit about that. Well, I mean, to me, it's really one thing with different parts. It's telling a story. And who are you telling the story to? And what's the best way to do it? So if I'm telling the story to two-year-olds, it's going to be a board book. If it's going to be a board book, it's going to be this amount of words, very few of them. And it's going to be very bright, graphic, simple pictures. And that's how I'm going to tell the story to two-year-olds. If I'm writing for I don't know, let's get up to third or fourth grade. It's a lot more words and it's a lot less picture, but it's still at its core telling a story and communicating that story to the reader. 
And I think that's like a big part of being an author and being an illustrator is thinking about that audience. Like, I think when you're an artiste, a real true artiste, and I don't know, you have to go talk to one to find out if I'm right in this assessment. But sometimes I feel like when you are, you're like emoting and you're creating that which you want to create. Whereas the way I work is I'm thinking about how am I going to communicate? How am I going to connect to that audience? It's not just this ivory tower making a piece of work to express an idea and whoever gets it gets it. It's very much tangible. I really want to connect to my reader. And if that reader is two and likes to chew on the corners of a book, I'm going to be thinking about that two-year-old and what's going to grab their attention. Not necessarily, although definitely what I want to do, but really focus on what they want to hear. It's a combination of both. It's not fair to say that my voice doesn't matter, but it really is the synthesis of really keeping that reader in mind and what I want to get across to them. Does that make sense? Yeah. And you also have been a teacher. So has your teaching played into understanding your audience? Well, when I was an art teacher at Hank, I was at the Hebrew Academy in Nassau County. I taught all the way from kindergarten through eighth grade. So I guess that just helped me be like, kindergartners are like this, and first graders are like this, and sixth graders are way older. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it just helped me connect. But it, it also helped me by having my own kids help me connect too. Like, I remember my daughter would play with her tea set, and she would play with the tea set and set everything up, and then she'd put it back in the thing, and then she'd do it again and set everything up. And I'm like, oh, they like setting the table. They think that that's fun. I'm going to write a book about setting a table, which is how the Kayla and Kugel series started, because it was basically my main character, Kayla, and her dog, Kugel, setting the table for Shabbat. But it's Aww. totally inspired by my daughter playing with that little pink tea set. It was pink and purple. Very, very stereotypical. <laughs> That's so sweet. Yeah. And I mean, I, I can relate to that, too, because I had my first son. He was super into numbers and directions where he would be like, okay, two lefts, then a right, then a left, then a right. So I drafted just, you know, kind of what my son counts throughout his day. And at one point, I thought it would be fun to create a children's book. I think a lot of people think that about their own kids, you know, like, what is your kid into? And can well, I write a story little... about that? <laughs> yeah, well, they're little inspiration machines running around, you know, or focus group, depending how you think of them. <laughs> And especially if that's what you, but it has to be that that's what you want to do. Like if you want to write horror <laughs> vampire work and you have a four-year-old, it might not be the right match. <laughs> you may have to wait for them to grow. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Yeah. I haven't thought about writing vampire stories. Just... I'm just saying if it's on your to-do list, you may need to wait for them to get older to use them as your focus group. <laughs> that's cute. Have your other children inspired you to write any other stories? Let's see, how shall I embarrass them? Yes, one of my, if I just say son, and I don't use his name, would that embarrass him less? Let's find out. So, <laughs> so one of my sons, when he was younger, he's 23 now and way taller than me. But when he was younger, he would spend a lot of our Shabbat Friday night dinners under the table. This was definitely his place because sitting at the table was way too long and way too boring. And under the table was much more exciting. So that definitely inspired. I had a book last Passover called Under the Sea Seder, where Miri goes under the table because she's bored at the Seder. And when she's under the table, she imagines that the table is a submarine and she goes on a journey and meets sea monsters and they are Seder sea monsters. So they have a wonderful Seder together. And then she comes back and brings the lessons she learned from under the sea back to her family Seder. But that was definitely inspired because ah, my son spent all this time under the table during a ritual family meal. <laughs> so that became that book. And how many kids to love to do that too? Like that's such that's a thing a kids do. Yeah, that's the place to be. I don't know. I don't know what we're missing. There might be chicken nuggets under there. Who knows? <laughs> that's sweet. Yeah. One thing that we do on Passover that I feel like relates to that is, and I don't even know where this came from. I think we went to like a Passover retreat and we saw people acting out parts of Passover, but we 
we take like two blue plastic tablecloths, me and my husband, and we hold you, each side. Yeah, yeah that the I kids run through like the splitting of the sea to That's freedom. That's yes. sounds fun. That's the a good memory maker. Love that. We have been doing it for since each one of them were small. And, you know, now the older kids are like holding up the tablecloths and, you know, instead of my husband. But they all still love like dancing through that. And it's like, yeah, you've got to bring the story alive, right? Yeah, that'll work. Who needs a book? You could do it with tablecloths. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. So I watched that video, too, that one of your sons helped make of your father. Oh, that's so sweet. Um, That's so nice. You took the time to watch that. Yeah, he's quite something. And I think that it's so cool that one, your son is creative in putting together video and using B-roll and pictures and voiceover and also like interview that you did of your own dad. How cool is that? So obviously, yeah. that's more storytelling, not only storytelling, but I feel like your family understands legacy. Well, yeah, well, we're lucky enough to have one that we're proud to share. And it's just such good material. Yeah, I'm very proud when I watch that video. To, exactly. Like I have to be proud from multiple directions. I'm proud of my father, of Zadie. Listen, you know, like, oh my gosh, he has such a great story. And he's still with us, thank God, 92 years old. Yeah. And then I'm proud. My little boy who I carried made this video. <laughs> it's like, it's not amazing. I mean, those videos don't just happen. There's so much work that you know, there's so much work that goes into like a two, it's what a 10 minute video. Every 30 seconds is incredibly labor intensive. So the fact that my son wanted to make a video about my father is so meaningful, just so meaningful that he felt the con, cause I'll tell, ask him all the time, can you make me a book trailer? No. But it's just a minute. It'll take you 15 seconds. No, he's not going to make me a book trailer. That is not fun. But for his grandfather and to preserve the legacy and to preserve those stories for his own, he even would say, for my own children, I want to see them to see that he spent the time to do it. So that was very, very meaningful on and both directions. Yeah. What I took from that, too, is that your dad wanted to inspire and give back to his community. I think that that was something really important to him. Did that stick with you? I think, I mean, every Shabbat growing up in synagogue, we were in a conservative style shul synagogue. And I would sit next to my mom and she would let us go out to play. And when my dad would come to stand up and give a sermon, all the kids would be sent out so that they don't cause a ruckus. And I would be brought in to hear my father's sermon. So it was just like, nope, you're the rabbi's daughter. You have to come in and hear your father speak, which means for about 18 years, I heard my father's sermons or what he felt was important to teach or highlight. And he would do jokes, rabbi jokes, God help us. But like he would do rabbi jokes and he would say, did you see today's New York Times? And he would use... But basically, besides the regular lessons that, you know, you always get from your parents, I got sermons from my father once a week, every week for years and years and years and years. And I don't think my parents thought of it that way. I think they just thought of it. Your father speaking, it's important for you to sit here and be a mensch, which is also an important lesson because that's inherently a good lesson to just be respectful. We should all learn that. But really, I learned, I heard what he was saying. And I don't know if I could recall for you any particular sermon, but I definitely got his messages and his stories and his approach and his vibes. So yeah, they definitely had an impact. I think if I would start really unpacking all the impact all that had, I think it would be staggering. You know, like it would take me too long to explain all the things I've learned from him. And my mom too. She should get points also. That's wonderful. Another thing I did hear him say in the video is that he loves his children and he loves his grandchildren. That is a priority for him. Yeah. Do you think having... Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Yes. Do you think that that made you want that out of life? What, to have a family? Yeah, because... 100%. Obviously, family was the biggest priority to all of us. I mean, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I don't have to say more than that. Yeah. For sure. Because that's like, that's all that mattered. Everything else was to support that. 
And when you have that, you want that. Well, yeah. Well, it's what's important. It's what's the value. It's what's important. It's not even told explicitly, but everything is in support of family. And every and the family is always the priority. So if it's between X and family, family always wins. So you're told that lesson over and over and over again. If that's the lesson, then that's what's respected. Then that rubs off. Speaking of lessons, do you feel like each one of your books are to teach a lesson? And do you try to incorporate maybe your values into the books? Or I did hear you say in another interview with uh, Mel Rosenberg that you try to make your books universal. Well, that's an interesting, it depends how you're defining it. But there is always a lesson in there. And the lesson could sometimes be joy. Hmm. You know, it could just be, this is something joyful. You know, we're going to have a cat play with the Tadaka box happily. And then the lesson is Tadaka is joyful. I really try hard to not make my books preachy. So I try to sneak in the lesson, like hide the lesson in between fun stuff so that it's not noticed, (laughs) except that it's absorbed because they don't want to sit there. And now, boys and girls, we shall learn how to mind our P's and Q's because that is no way to tell any kid anything. They won't want to hear it and they won't. Again, this is part of the same thing which I said before, which is we're trying to communicate. If you're trying to communicate and you're lecturing at somebody, the ears will shut immediately. But if you have a cute cat (laughs) and the cat is very, very, very cute, then maybe they'll get this sideways lesson. Oh, Tzedakah, the cat likes the box. And maybe that means I should like the box. And maybe that means there's something good about Tzedakah. And maybe that's a lesson that comes in through osmosis. I love that. So yes, there's always lessons in there, but it's packed inside fun stuff. That makes sense. I also know that you are very involved in being a part of groups with other creatives. Can you talk about how that's influenced your success? Oh, my gosh. So it goes to the same thing that I was saying, that it's great to visit schools and see your audience. So the thing that a lot of people have in their lives is collaboration when they go to work. You know, you go to work, you have collaborators, you sit next to somebody in a cubicle, you have meetings, there's collaboration and people respond to your work and they say, you're doing a great job or hmm, maybe not so much. So when you're a freelancer and you're sitting alone in your office, you don't get that collegial feedback. So by being part of writing groups with other authors who are trying to tell their stories and I'm trying to tell my story and then we read to each other and give each other feedback and critique, honest feedback and critique from smart people. I only try to do groups with smart people. (laughs) It's incredibly valuable and has that collegial nurturing, fostering, all those things because at a certain point you can't see your own work. It's like when you try on a dress and like you don't see yourself in the mirror because all you can see is the 10 pounds you wanted to lose. You might look great in the dress, but all you can see is the 10 pounds. You have your best friend come to the store and she's like, you look fabulous. And then you buy the dress and you move on. So a writing group is kind of like that. You go to a writing group and they say, no, don't wear that dress. You are going up the wrong alley. That color is not for you. Or they say, you know, just a little bit of work. Some accessorizing will help you out. (laughs) You know, you're getting there. Keep working at it. Or, you know, you got it. And I make friends. Friends are good especially friends that understand that part of you, which is such an important part of me. And they get it because they're trying to do it too. So that's what those kind of groups mean to me. I love that. Do you want to talk a little bit more about the ones that you're in? Yeah. Just that they're great. They're just great. And it's not like getting feedback from your best friend, even if they, you know, even if they're a really smart best friend, because they're not writers necessarily. I have friends who are occupational therapists. They're not going to be useful, although they are sometimes useful (laughs) if they work with children. (laughs) Now that I said that, I have a speech therapy friend who I went for walks a lot and she was hugely helpful because I was doing a very young child book and I wanted to make sure to use exactly the right words for that age level. And she was like, well, at this age, these words are in their vocabulary, but those words aren't yet. And so I take it back. You can get good feedback from non-writer friends. And this was one, highly. But in terms of a writing group itself, they're, they're going through the same experience. You're on the same journey. We could talk about the frustrations of like professionally also, like, oh my God, I submitted, I'm trying to get an agent and I have so much rejection and I feel so down. And we're like, no, we got rejected too. <laughs> or I got a bad review or don't worry, don't let it get you down. And we're each other's cheerleaders also. 
So it's great to have friends on the same journey. Yes, I love that. What about your parents as supporters? Were they encouragers? Were they excited about you wanting to be an artist? They were, which is kind of shocking because didn't talk me out of it, which I think is huge because I think a lot of parents want to make sure that their kids are able to eat (laughs) and have a living and be stable and secure. And they were supportive when I said, I want to do this. And they said, okay, maybe you can do it with something else. (laughs) You know, they were still trying to make sure that I'd be able to eat, but they didn't say it's valueless. What do you think you're doing? And they're very, very proud of me. And they're my best PR agent ever is a Jewish mother. Because <laughs> she'll like just say, my mother's new book is out. <laughs> and tell all her friends and then she'll give it as baby gifts. And it's good stuff. That's wonderful. And do you try to be that way as a mom yourself? I try. I certainly try. I have creative sons and they're definitely giving me a run for my money in terms of being supportive and they are making their own way in the universe and I couldn't be proud. But the thing is, I'm so proud of them. I'm so proud of them. They're so extraordinary doing extraordinary things that are not the run of the mill. So I'm, I like them. Yeah, I watched one of your son's videos. He did a yeah. video about athletes and steroid use. Yes, it went viral, or at least for him, it went viral. So he was very excited. (laughs) Yeah. Did you watch the whole thing? Of course I did. I had to watch it several times. (laughs) Did you give him feedback? I only give feedback if invited, and certainly not when it's done. There's no point giving feedback when it's done, because like it's done. (laughs) But if it's in process, and he, you know what, he asked me for help a lot, like the YouTube thumbnail. When you post a a video on YouTube, you have to post a little photo that people will click on and hopefully get views. Something enticing just to have people to click on the video. And so he's a couple times brought me thumbnails and said, should I use this one or this one or this one or this one? And then I could give feedback on that because that's what I do. I make visually compelling images, I hope. So I can try to help him a little bit on that. And so that he asked me for help. The video part, he's like, He'll show me it in process, but I'm not a video person. So I can give feedback as a viewer. I can't give feedback as a fellow videographer. So I could say, I didn't understand that. What? (laughs) Could you make that clearer? But I can't tell him how to make it clearer because I don't, that's not my art form. That's his. Yeah, that makes sense. Can you talk to me a little bit more about your art? form. And I'm sure I did hear you say on another video that people always want to know, like, how can they get published? So process is, well, the first thing is you have to think of an idea for a book, which is really hard because there are a whole lot of other books out there already. (laughs) So to come up with a new one is not so easy. And that can come from lots of different places that can come from somebody. Usually it's just something that interests me right now. I'm working on a piece of American Jewish history that I'm like, I can't believe, I can't, I can't tell you because I'm on a podcast, but it's so cool. I can't believe this is part of American Jewish history. So I'm excavating that story and, and hope to retell that. Or like I wrote Judah Maccabee Goes to the Doctor, which is sitting over there, which is a story about a kid who was scared to get shots and then he overcomes his fears and gets his shot. And I did that because I got angry. This is way, way, way before COVID, back in the olden days when measles was the thing. And there were a couple families in my kids' schools who were refusing to vaccinate for measles. And the school was saying, well, we're not sure you could come to our school then. And then they sued the school. Wow. And And I was very upset about that because my husband's a lawyer and he found the complaint because <laughs> it's public and we were reading the complaint and the complaint was like, how dare this school say my kid can't go? It's my religious belief to not get vaccinated. And I'm like, hold on a second. This is a Jewish school and you're saying it's your religion. No, this doesn't work. That's not a Torah perspective to not get vaccinated. In fact, it's the opposite. So that made me mad. So I decided to solve the problem by writing a children's book (laughs) because that would fix everything. But, you know, just something that I care about, something that interests me, something that I care about. So you have the idea and then you write the story and I'm going to make all this sound so simple. And it really each step is like agonizing. Ah. Write the story. 
<laughs> and I show it to my writing group and I write it again and I write it again. And then I eventually gets to a place where I could submit it to publishers for, hey, would you like to publish this book? And then if I'm lucky enough and they say yes, then I say, but I would like to illustrate it too. And sometimes they say yes. And sometimes they say, nah, we're going to get somebody else. So Judith the Maccabee Goes to the Doctor was illustrated by Talitha Shipman, not me. She did a great job. Damn it. I'm going to do it. She did a great job. <laughs> and I'm really, really happy with how it turned out. So I got no complaints. And that's its own process. You know, you do sketches, you send them to the editor. The editor says, that looks good. This could be better. This could be stronger. Can you do it this way instead? That goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And finally, you go to the final art. And then the final art does a little bit of that same back and forth, back and forth. Then they send it to China and it becomes a book. <laughs> In terms of getting published, there are no easy answers. I always tell people to join the Graphics Artists Guild, to join the Society of Children's Book Writers Illustrator Group. That's a lot of letters, S-C-B-W-I. If they are in a Jewish niche like I am, the Jewish Book Council has events for writers. At all these types of places, you can find support. Meet with ed editors are speaking. They'll say, you can submit to me. You could take that opportunity. And it feels like a giant game of lottery tickets. It's really, really hard to get noticed. It's really hard to be exactly what they're looking for at exactly the right moment. And you have to hope that you arrive on their desk exactly at the moment they are looking for exactly what you do. And there you go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like Hollywood is a bit of that too. Timing sure. definitely matters. In the meantime, you wait tables. Or in the meantime, you have a real job. <laughs> yeah, but talk to me about having a few real jobs. You have. I have. I have. First, when I got married, I worked at Scholastic Books in the photo department. I did that for a couple years. And then when my kids showed up, I basically said, I'll be freelance illustrator, author, and be and part and mommy. So like I had a babysitter come 20 hours a week. And during those 20 hours is when I tried to illustrate and do that kind of work. And then the kids got bigger and taller and taller. And then at some point I said, I should have a real job when they were completely not coming home until five o'clock at night. So I first taught at Stern College as an adjunct professor of illustration. I did that for a semester. That was wonderful. Oh, I left out the Hank part. Yeah, I worked as an art teacher for a couple of years in my, the local elementary school. Then I was, was an art teacher in college. And then I had the opportunity to be an editor at Spearman House Publishers, which is the oldest Jewish publisher in the United States. They just celebrated their 100th anniversary. Amazing. So, like It was fun when I would go to their library. They had a library with one copy of every book that they published, which is a lot, over 100 years. And the oldest ones were about pre-state Israel, like Palestine or visiting Palestine. And I'm so scared to say that word right now because of all the context and lack of context that's going on everywhere. But it was so interesting to see these older archival <laughs> books that they put out. And then it was interesting to see some of their old books that are still in print, like As a Driven Leaf was one of their, If I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's just like was printed in 1960 something, 1950 something, and it's just still going. People still read it and still in print. It's pretty amazing. That is so amazing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then Were your parents, were your mm -hmm. parents readers? All the time. Yeah. Not my mom. My mom was always on the move. I think she liked reading. But like when I was a kid, I was like always taking her attention away. So I didn't really get to see her read because she was helping me. But my dad would always, I don't know, there were tons and tons of books in the house. So I guess they were both readers. <laughs> and we would go to the library all the time. That was like we would come home with stacks and stacks to get through Shabbat. I feel like books are a part of our culture. We are the people of the book. <laughs> I remember when my husband and I were looking for our first apartment. So when they start looking for apartments, they bring you to where people are living and you get to see how other people, sometimes people are still living there when you get to see the apartments. And we were like, where are the books? And it was just shocking to us that these apartments, I mean, it's Manhattan. So people only had so much room for whatever they would have. But I was just like, where do you put the books? And they'd be like, they're over there. And there would be three of them. And I'm like, oh, 
that's not what I mean. <laughs> you know, it was just like, okay, there are people in this world that don't hoard books the way that I do. Good to know. What are you learning now? Yeah, I am learning how to deal with crisis in the Middle East and the rise of anti-Semitism, which I didn't want to learn. And how to deal with a community who is in dealing with generational trauma. That's the best way to put it. I think we're all kind of freaked out. Definitely. I was at the rally. The rally was awesome. You went? I did. I was there for 20 minutes. <laughs> Our buses didn't show up until like the last. <laughs> but I'm still glad I was counted. I got the vibes. I still had the experience of like walking with thousands of Jews through the metro and through the streets of DC and standing there, you know, in community. So it was really touching and inspiring to be a part of that. Were you scared? No, I wasn't because it was so, I don't know, maybe I'm a Pollyanna or whatever they call the people who think that everything's going to be fine. But I was like, they know Washington, D.C. is not interested in there being anything bad. They are going to put all the security. There's going to be 7 million cops at this thing. I was like, they're going to make it a hard target. It's not going to be anything. I really wasn't scared. I'm like, they're going to work so hard on the security because they know. That's like, they know it's coming. The scary thing is when things that you can't predict, like walking through the holes of NYU and oh my goodness, you're going to have to lock yourself in the room. Like that's surprising. So you can't plan for that. To me, that's when it's unsafe. This is when uh, they're like, okay, 300,000 Jews are coming. They're going to have blue and white flags. We better have a lot of cops. And there were snipers on the roof. They had security that was appropriate for the situation. So I wasn't scared. I'm happy to hear that. Yeah. Have you talked about how your parents feel about what's happening in the world? That's really interesting. I know they're not happy about it. I don't know that I've had deep, meaningful conversation about with them. I just know they'll like call me on the phone and said, did you see the latest horrible news story? Fill in the blank. And I'll be like, yeah, I heard about it. And they'll be like, it's terrible. And I'm like, yes, it is. <laughs> you know, so we've had conversations like that. But that's an interesting, deep question that I should definitely ask them. Like, what does it make them remember? I mean, my father remembers, you saw in that video, he remembers when Israel became a state. Yeah. And it was incredibly meaningful and impactful to him. And he remembers everybody crying and pouring money out. He was at like an event where they were raising money and everybody just threw money in the basket and they were poor people. But it was historic. I know, you know, that's an understatement. So I haven't asked him that in a deep way. Like, what does he feel about all this? It's a good question. And do you feel like your parents have lived the American dream? I think our family has lived the American dream. Like, cause you start with my, not my father, his father coming in, literally jumping off a boat into Canadian waters. He came in wet cause they were gonna send the boat back to Europe. And he and a bunch of friends said, we're not going back. And they jumped off and he somehow got help from the Jewish community and they gave him dry clothes and they put him on a train to New York and somehow this part of the story isn't clear, but he got to Chicago and he worked in the Shmata business like everybody else, you know, in rags. And then he eventually saved enough money to get my grandmother to come over. She came in legally. And then they had a store in Chicago. And then his son went to college and went to Northwestern. And then his son, my brother, Nathan, is the Orthodox Union's man in Washington and has gone to the Hanukkah dinner at the White House many times. So there's something amazing. Just two generations later, somebody jumps off a boat and his grandson is dining at the White House. So that's something extraordinary. So I think the family as an arc certainly lives the American dream. Does that give you hope? Well, you mean for because of all the stuff that's going on now? Yeah. Oh, it depends on the time of day. <laughs> depends like, am I in a positive mood? And when I say America is different and this is a special place and this is a country that has deep, deep understanding of freedom and cares about good stuff and isn't going to let anything bad happen. And that's just not what America's about. And then I'm in a positive mood and then I'm in a negative mood and I'm like, 
oh my God, it's time to run. Louis, you know, like the shtetl person inside goes, well, is it time to run? We must run. You know, that's the generational trauma, right? I don't know. I don't know. If I'm in a good mood, I'll say, you know, not everybody in this country, in fact, most of this country does not reside on a college campus. <laughs> and all those politicians showed up to the rally to stand with Israel and they were left, right, center and upside down. And they wouldn't do that. They're politicians. They wouldn't do that unless they thought their constituents felt that way. And maybe it's just the loud voices that are getting the most airtime. I don't know. And then I think I have to run. But I'm not sure we're supposed to run to. There doesn't seem to be a home base. Like Israel is amazing. And that was always like in our heads, that's the safe haven, except that's where the people got killed and the rockets are. So Israel still might be the answer, but it's hard to know. There's no crystal ball. And you, you want to ever- write a story about this? Oh, I don't know. That's a good question. We'll see. I wish I could be like organized and planful about what my ideas are. It doesn't seem to work that way. <laughs> like I could be organized and planful on like, okay, I'm working on this book and today we're going to do that. And I'm going to reach out to these three editors and I'm going to, you know, submit this and I'm going to get these art supplies and I'm going to draw these four pictures. But to think of that first part, the idea it's to, to, to get the whole ball moving is really like, every time I try to force it, it doesn't work. If I'm like, today I shall think of an idea. I will think of an idea, but it will be bad. <laughs> it just doesn't work. So I have to kind of like be okay with the fact that they'll show up when they show up. And that's hard because sometimes I'm bored. And I'm like, I want something to work on. Now between projects, I should think of a new idea, but I don't have one yet. And I'm like grumpy. But you have so many talents, like when you don't have an idea, do you draw or do you try to work on your communication skills? Do you reach out to editors? When you don't yeah. have an idea, what do you do? Well, I've been very lucky because like for the past couple of years, there's been like enough in the grist in the mill. I don't know what's I'm making hand motions that you can't see on a podcast. It's just like there's enough things in the pipeline. There you go. There's enough thing going in the pipeline that when I don't have an idea, it's okay because the editor just got back to me on the sketches for the other book that I'm working on and I could draw while I hope, hope that the idea shows up. Hmm. But sometimes it's like everything's on everybody's desk and I can't work on that and I can't work on that and I can't work on that. I'm just waiting for everybody and I don't have an idea. So I'll clean a closet <laughs> or go to a museum with a friend and I could do that for a couple of days. And then at a certain point, go for a walk and hope something shows up. Like, you know, walking is good because it gets the juices going. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. It was really interesting. Just before I came on the air with you, on the air, ooh, <laughs> that sounds special. I was listening to the Unorthodox podcast and they were interviewing Edgar Carrot, the author from Israel. And he was saying how he can't think of any ideas right now. I thought that was very interesting because he's in Israel and there's a war and he's just, he can't write. So he's doing all these amazing things. He's like helping people and he's tutoring a girl who lost family in the on October 7th and he's doing messages to soldiers or whatever, but he can't write. And I'm like, okay, if Edgar Carrick can't write, I can cut myself a break. <laughs> Everybody is human. Yeah, I love that message, actually. And I want to dig into that a little bit more. How do you enjoy giving back to your community and being a part of your community? It's interesting because like when this whole war thing happens, I was like, okay, I'm not the ADL <laughs> and I'm not a soldier. So what can I do? And that's how I figured out how I met your sister because I yeah. offered on Facebook hey, if anybody wants Zoom visits. And I did that as a give back. And I wish more people would take me up on it. I did two schools in Israel and I've offered it a couple times to different places. But I think in the early days it was really useful, but I think now they found their groove and they don't need that as much. But that was one way. And I do that on an ongoing basis. Like, you know, to my kid's school, I'll donate a visit or to different situations where it's appropriate. 
Like I just did a Stern College book talk. That was a donation. That's my alma mater, you know? I was going to say that. How does that feel speaking at your alma mater? Oh, it was on Zoom. It felt like nothing different. I didn't leave my office, but it was really fun. And it felt good to also felt good to talk to grownups. Like, cause I was, oh, I'm always like this, talking like this, like Minnie Mouse. But when I'm like with little, little kids, and this is like, I was talking like a grown up and explaining what I do. So it was a different vibe. So that's one way. And the other way is when you're part of a community, there's all sorts of stuff that you end up doing. You know, I helped pack bags to go to Israel. I helped just different things that happened in the neighborhood. I helped with Give Back Sunday when my kids were younger. We would pack packages for hospitals my friend organized, or I organized the speakers for the synagogue, or I just being a part of the community. I painted a mural. Huh. I painted a mural in my kid's school. I painted another mural in the synagogue. So like, you know, if they let me paint on a wall, I'm totally going to do that. <laughs> That's just fun. But you know, just there's nothing specific. Oh, I do have my mission of choice, which is to try to get women's faces into Jewish media. Yeah, talk um, a little bit about that. Yeah, right now it feels like we're putting all those kind of arguments to the side because of the larger conflict that's happening in Israel. But I do feel strongly that treating women as people, since we are people, is appropriate. And a lot of ultra-Orthodox media has chosen to not include photos of women's faces, which is a whole made-up thing and totally not part of Jewish tradition. They just made it up to sell magazines. And so I've been working with other women from the community to say, hey, that's a bad idea. So we do that. (laughs) Yeah, I saw the website about that. That's a great mission to have. I appreciate that. Yeah, it is a good mission to have. I think it's very important. And we see, I mean, not to compare, but when we see the hostage posters, which is basically faces of people, and that's what we use to evoke compassion and empathy and connection is pictures. And how we feel when they're torn down is that kind of surfaces why I find it so upsetting when women's pictures aren't included. And I don't mean to compare because that's a horrible comparison because those people are hostages and it's not fair. And I just want to have my book in the magazine so I can promote a book. So there's like no comparison and I don't mean to draw a comparison and it would be horrible to draw a comparison, but it does just evoke how important pictures are. And I think it's very hard for people to see something that's not there. Yes. Right? It's invisible. So it's hard for when people pick up a magazine, they like don't see that women's pictures aren't there. The people, the magazines that do it, do it very well. And it's not glaringly obvious. They're just not there. So I see it because I make books (laughs) and I communicate with pictures. So when I pick up a magazine, I'm like, ah, they're not there. (laughs) And it bothers the heck out of me. But everybody else picks up and it's like, what? I never noticed. So it's kind of like, hello, this is important. And they're like, it's important? Like, it's important. (laughs) So it's a very challenging. First, you have to communicate why pictures are important. Then you have to communicate why it's bad to not have women's pictures, like many steps to have the argument. But as I said, in these times, it feels like an argument that has to wait a little bit. Like they're not arguing about judicial reform right now either. It's like, I look forward to when we can have that argument again. Amen. Yeah. It's a luxury to have arguments like that, to be able to talk about what we think and what we believe and what we value. Right now, we're just like, past the ammunition, we need to survive. (laughs) It's a different, it's a different phase. Isn't that something too? Like how your complaints and what's important can completely change with a larger problem? It's still very important to me. It's just not the right time for it. And I think judicial reform is very important to all the people who are rallying in Israel for weeks and weeks. You know, it's an important argument that people were having. You just can't have it when you first have to make sure you could breathe. Then you could have the argument. Crazy. We are living in an upside down world. That sounds like a title of a book. <laughs> yeah, I think I stole it from ha- now. If Hamilton stole it from history. The world turned upside down. What was that from? I know it's in Hamilton. It's a song. But they got it from somewhere else, and I can't remember what they got it from. We'll have to Google afterwards. What keeps you inspired? Are there things that you tell yourself or things that you do to keep going? 
I just, I don't know. I get bored if I don't do something creative. It's like part of who I am. Mm. It's like an itch. You got to scratch it. It's just who I am. I can't not being creating something. It just gets boring. Like, <laughs> I get that. So I don't know that it's inspiration. It's just like eating. You get hungry and then you do it. I want to tell a story. So I better think of one and then I do it. I love that. I can relate to that. It totally charges me up to, to do, do what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. It has yeah. become that way for mm-hmm. me where if I don't do it for weeks at a time, I like miss it, need it. Yeah. Well, I guess that's how some people, not me, feel about exercise, right? They like get endorphins when they like exercise. I'm like, not me. <laughs> I just want to sit on the couch. But there are people who are exercise junkies. If they don't exercise for a while, they're down. So if I don't create for a while, I'm down. So that's a reverse of what you're asking. You're saying what inspires. I'm just saying if I don't do it, then I don't feel good. I can relate to that. Is there anything that you would like to ask my dad? Oh, you know, because of what we're all dealing with, I would love to ask your dad, how is he seeing this conflict and how is he seeing this moment in history? Because how old is he? He is 67. Okay, so he has more years on me. And like, what perspective does, not that many, not that many, but he, what is his perspective on, do we need to run or everything's going to be okay? And what should we be doing now? And how should we be thinking about it? Great questions. I can tell yeah. you that. Really simple question. I go for the simple, easy question. I know, right? <laughs> yeah, but I definitely ask him similarly, was it this bad ever? Have you ever seen it this bad? And he feels like he has. He feels like he definitely experienced anti-Semitism in his day. So wow. where did he grow up? New York. Wow. Okay. Which is interesting. Yeah. When we asked my dad, he would tell us a couple stories of anti-Semitism he had in Chicago, or as he said, Chicago. But there weren't a lot. There weren't a lot, but there were some. And one of the reasons he said he was a rabbi, and this is crazy to think about, he went to Northwestern Business School and got an MBA. And he said when he tried to get jobs in accounting, it was hard for a Jewish boy to get a job in accounting. Could you imagine? Accounting? (laughs) I thought that was one we had all the time since forever. And so he ended up using his smicha, his rabbinical degree. But he also didn't like it that much. He did get a job in accounting eventually, and he found it very boring, (laughs) which I totally hear. So that was part of it too. But just, you know, from a historical arc, like, I don't know that accounting is a hard job for a Jewish boy to get these days. Did you ever consider accounting or take after? No, 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 no. (laughs) Math would not be in the set of skills that I uh, list on my resume. (laughs) Well, I love that your parents encouraged you and that they're around and they taught you about legacy and storytelling and... Thank you so much for coming on the Better Call Daddy show and for volunteering in my sister's class. You've heard from my mom. Now let's switch it over to grandpa. So Jessica sent me a guest, my sister. Well, what was nice is that she's connected with her artwork. And of course, as you know, your sister Jessica is teaching and likes to think outside the box and take field trips and have you really feel nature and uh, to take field trips and to live and breathe the art and see it and touch it and feel it. And isn't that also a definition of creativity, which is what this girl Anne brings up, is that you have to really be concentrating and relaxed and at peace in order to be creative. It's one of the ingredients that you can't force it. It's something that has to come from the best of you and where you're experiencing and really in a deep concentration and feeling good and good things can come out of it. And then of course, her question is, is that when you have the Jewish people being persecuted all over the world and where the homeland that we're defending vigorously can be under a terrorist attack like we have now. And of course, we've seen this before all throughout history where you could be in the midst of creativity, in the midst of tremendous, beautiful family outings, developing your business, developing your community, 
And then all of a sudden, it's just a fight for survival, where everything that you've worked for, everything that you've built on in your life, and it can be generations of wealth and accomplishments, and it can all just be wiped out in a second. So it really makes you think how important it is to have a Jewish legacy, to have a family legacy that we are lucky to have and very special to have because we still live in a very barbaric world and it can be a storm that can arise and everything that you know of, of good, can be wiped out in a second. So to appreciate and have some humility in your life and realize how fragile life is, it really comes out in this episode. And even being creative is difficult to do in times of war, in times of attack, and times of pressure. That if we really want to have a better world, and we really want to see beautiful things, and where we can accomplish beautiful things, it has to be during a time of peace. Couldn't have said it better myself. Sounds good, right? But giving back, accomplishing things, keeping yourself busy, staying positive is the only way out. She said something that I've heard also a thousand times. Where can Jews run to if we're being attacked and persecuted? Where can we hide? The answer is we can't hide. We can't run. We have to be always be able and willing to stand up straight and be proud of who we are and our heritage and continue to show a shining example to the world that we can overcome any adversity. And that's really the way people have a chance to not only live in peace, but to be successful at anything that they want to do. It's not hiding. It's not running. And even though sometimes it's scary, we have to always face reality and be able to be on guard for it and look for a brighter day. Thanks for listening. Now I think I'm going to go call my dad. (laughs) I'll say goodbye and see you the next time. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy show. Join us weekly for new episodes and more daddy wisdom. Better Call Daddy is good advice always. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. You can also find special episodes on my YouTube channel. And you can listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Amazon Music, Alexa, or your preferred podcatcher. That's a wrap for now.